Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I am here with my co-hosts. They are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Greetings, Max. Who was the guest on the show this week? This week, I talked to Willa Paskin. You guys know Willa Paskin? I do. She, uh, for a long time, was the TV critic at Slate. Before that, she was the TV critic at Salon. Before that, she was an editor and writer at Vulture. But now, and for the last several years, she has been the host of a podcast called Decoder Ring from Slate. Decoder Ring, every episode is a deep dive into some cultural mystery that Willa is trying to unlock. The range of topics on the show is like almost infinite. It's everything from like hydration to Salino and Barnes to what impact did Sideways actually have on the wine industry to all kinds of things. I love the show. I've been listening to it for a long time. And uh, it was a real pleasure to talk to her both about how she makes the thing. She's actually working on the next season now. It comes out April 12th, but also how she thinks about TV now, which has changed a lot, and how those two things talk to each other and how doing Dakota Ring is a lot like criticism, which was not a thing that I would have thought before I talked to her. I kind of stopped uh, everything you said after Salino and Barnes was competing in my brain with Salino and Barnes. Injury Injury attorneys. (laughs) 1-800-888-8888. I want to clarify something from last week's introduction because we got some reader mail about this. I don't actually feel like I wasted the last decade of my life on this show. (laughs) That was a joke. (laughs) I feel like that's the first correction in the history of the show. (laughs) You said it was such I, passion, I think. I have nothing but gratitude for my time as the host of, of this show. And uh, I was uh, I was simply making jokes, as is my role in the introductions to this program, <laughs> which is produced in partnership with Vox Media, thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Max with Willa Paskin. I love you guys. Hi, Willa. Hi, Max. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm really, I'm really so happy to be here, genuinely. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm really so happy, genuinely, for you to be here. I feel like it's a uh, long time coming. Here is a thing that I'm excited about. So oftentimes, people come on the show, right? And the first question is like, how'd you get started writing? You are the rare guest who has written an article entitled, Why I Became a TV Critic. Oh my god, did I? Like Max, I don't know the article. I'm sure I know what it says, I think, but I don't I don't know it. Well, I think this should be a test cuz I know what it says cuz I just read it. You wrote it in 2016. Okay. So, let's go back in time. 
Okay. What did 2016 Willa Paskin think was the reason she became a TV critic? I think it's because I wanted to know why people care about the things that they care about. And also because I watched so much TV when I was a kid. Was this like around Donald Trump time? Like what was the occasion of this piece? Donald Trump was not yet president. It was January 2016. But I must tell you, that was not the reason why 2016 Willa became a TV critic. Oh, this is the thing. I just found it. <laughs> <laughs> There's no Googling allowed in this exam. I'm sorry. You you came prepared. I'm like bringing my class materials uh, to the test. Um, oh, yeah. No, this is all about anthropology and everything, right? Is that what it's about? It, it, it's a classic Willa construction. Now I've spent a lot of time in the last like week. I've read a lot of pieces. I've listened to a lot of Dakota Ring. There is a kind of classic Willa construction, which is we start with young Willa and her interest in anthropology, but it lands in a different place and with a relatively clear conclusion. And in this case, your answer to why you became a TV critic was timing. Really? I kind of think that. <laughs> You know what's so funny, actually? I like, firstly, I'm very flattered that you just said there was like a willow for I really like talking to people because they say things to you that you would never think yourself. Like, this is the joy of talking to people. This is why it's so fun to interview people. And I just like that was that was nice to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say with any piece of writing or podcast or anything like there is um some artifice because you are making a structure. So it's possible that that piece about why I became a TV critic is like a little cleaner and more argumented than the reality. Uh, but I do think timing did actually have a lot to do with why I became a TV critic, as did my interest in anthropology. Both of those <laughs> things are part of the story. Well, now there's so many places we could go. I'm very interested in the gap between the polished idea and the real thing. I'm pretty interested in your childhood obsession with anthropology, but I think for the purpose of the long-form podcast, it might be helpful to go back even further in time to when you were just out of school and starting to think about television and why timing is the answer for why, at least for a little while, you became a TV critic. Sure. So I think it's important to know that like, I grew up not watching a ton of TV. It was kind of like the thing that made my mom totally insane. Um, and as, I feel like that's the real answer. <laughs> oh, no, like that, that is. I was like that and I like thought it was like naughty. I think that's like the Freudian true answer. Um, but uh, so, right. So I watched a lot of TV and I was really interested in it. Like I really just liked it. And it was a lot of um, like boilerplate sort of teen shows like 90210 and everything on the WB. Uh, but I watched a lot of other stuff. And I went to college and it was at this time when this project that now is like so pedestrian and that was not really new then, but was sort of just like actually getting really popular of just being like, we're coming for the highbrow. Like, what is this high? There's no difference. Like, we are going to spend so much time thinking about pop culture and as seriously as anyone ever thought about the high arts, like we're coming like it's. It's topsy-turvy. And I mean, I was like, people had already been doing that. It's like a Gen X project. I I'm right on the cusp, like, but it felt like, especially in television, it felt really 
new, right? Like um, Television Without Pity, which was like this early recapping site where people would write these like honestly 20,000 words full of uh, nicknames for every single character about every episode. (laughs) But it was like they were all geniuses. Like it just uh, it was really like. It just felt like it was happening. Like Buffy was on. The Sopranos had just started, but it wasn't, you know, it was like still very like in that, um, is TV the new novel? Like, and that was like a novel thing to say kind of moment instead of like a just roll your eyes and go to sleep kind of thing. And so there was just like all this energy around it. And I, I can't, I just was like, I want to be a TV critic. Like I want to do what Pauline Kael did for movies about television. I was just very interested as, and I don't think this is unique to me in like trash culture. Like I was interested in TV and some of it wasn't good. And I knew that, but I loved it. I was like interested in tabloids. I mean, there again, that was, there was no way that I was unique in that. Like there was a lot of people like spending a lot of time thinking about us weekly and sort of trying to take guilty pleasures back by overthinking about them kind of. And I think what I got lucky about and what is true about the timing is that I really thought, and I was really interested in this question, which was related to sort of anthropology, which is like, why do people care about the things they care about? And I was like, I'm interested in that question and it doesn't matter to me if the product is good or not. It doesn't matter if the TV show is good, we can think interesting things even about something that's bad or mediocre or just popular. But what I think like timing really helped me luck out is it it's actually, it's more fun to think about things that are good. Like it is actually more nourishing. And this is like a, we can get into this because this is sort of pertains to why I think um, in some ways I became less interested in being a TV critic. Uh, but I did like luck into this moment where TV just got better. It did. And so there was a lot of things to think about that were popular and that were interesting and that people cared about a ton, but that like also were kind of felt like worth thinking about. Um, not just because they were like, weird cultural objects or, like, bad cultural objects that people loved anyway. And I think that was really sustaining, basically. Um, I think that's sort of, like, how I stayed interested in it for as long as I did. Can you stay in the time machine with me for a second? Yeah. And just try and think about how your, like, critical eye developed? How did the way that you watch, how did the way that you thought about shows and about the medium, how did that refine you know, I thought a little bit about this thinking about talking to you because I don't actually know that I have a good answer because I think some of this is like probably this is my personality <laughs> like <laughs> in the sense of like like I think like I was basically thinking about it in the context of more like I make a podcast now where like I kind of try to explain things and I think that there's a way that like explaining things seems like even I want to roll my eyes I'm just like oh my god another person trying to explain things and then I'm like oh but I just like think that's who I am you know like I think I just was kind of always like not trying to explain things but like wanting to understand them and like communicate a way of thinking about them and explain them like that I'm just like kind of a criticky person uh, <laughs> and I maybe always have been I don't like I don't remember some like moment where it clicked in like I just think my brain does a little bit work this way like isn't it so weird that I was like 19 and I was like I really want to be a tv critic like I did I can't explain that to you but it is true I think what I'm interested in is wanting to be a TV critic at 19 and actually pulling it off. That seems hard. 
Um, I know. It makes me, I honestly, I'm like self-conscious. I'm like, I should have wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. Like, what could I have willed into the world? Like, a little bigger. Think a little bigger. Well, well part of the, the reason I, I started with that piece you wrote in 2016 is because the sort of thesis of it is that if there hadn't been this kind of highbrow TV wave, maybe you would have just like wanted to be a TV critic for a couple months after college and then had gone and done something else. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the thing that did happen after college is I wasn't a TV critic right away. Like, I, I'm from New York. I went back to New York and I, like, waitressed and interned at a bunch of places, including at Us Weekly. And then I ended up at Vulture um, after, like, a bunch of stops. And, like, I think if TV had been boring by then, I just, like, would have been a culture writer. I would have been a culture critic or I would have been an editor. Like, I think I would have, I by that point, I was, like, had, I was in the world enough that I would have just... I might have been a generalist. I I might have just been an editor. But I, I, the, the fact that I had this, like, oh, I've always wanted to do this. And by that point, it had, like, been going on long enough that it ended up sort of being determinative. Do you have fond memories of your time at Us Weekly? No, I don't. But, like, that is itself a fond memory. Like, I do. Like, um, so as I said, like, low-bread trash culture really interested. Um, and I, like, loved reading tabloids. And I was like... I knew enough to be like, it's kind of embarrassing, but I also knew enough to be like, you're lame if you think this is embarrassing. Like, get with it, everybody. Um, and so I went. It was when it was it was owned by Jan Wenner. It was in the same office as Rolling Stone on 6th Avenue in the 50s. And um, it was hellacious because we basically um, just transcribed four-hour interviews with Bachelor contestants. Like, I'm kind of, like, they were doing things, but, like, that's, like, was a big part of the job, was, like, just, they would, like, they were just trying to get anything good and interesting, and these they were really, the staff there was, like, doing a, working super hard and, like, a ton of reporting. But the job for me was, like, a, literally transcribing, like, four-hour interviews with, like, the sixth guy to get kicked off The Bachelor. And um, we would go to Times Square and, like, have to ask people, do, like, the, like, who wore it best surveys. And I would ask, like, ten people, and it was just so mortified that then I would, like, go to the Mid-Manhattan Library and, like, read, like, new journalism as, like, to, <laughs> to, to, like, insulate myself and then just extrapolate out the answers. But it was, like, I mean, there were things that were super fascinating about it. I mean, I I learned, like, they, how they fact – like, they really fact-check a lot of things uh, in a way. So it was, like – I mean, there's language things. But it's, like, if they said something happened, like, it probably happened. You know, if they said, like, alleged or, like, as told – you know, they had ways of sort of making it seem like it happened. But if they were, like, going to be, like, this happened, like, they checked it. Um, and they really worked so hard. And there was obviously so much stuff I didn't know anything about, like, tip lines or whatever. But I was just, like, kind of – I just, like – I just basically, honestly, like, had this experience, not for the last time, where I was like, oh, there is a lowbrow that's too low for me, and, like, I have encountered <laughs> it. And, like, that's not necessarily, like, I, that's a snobby <laughs> thing to say, but I was like, it was good to, like, have that. I think it, uh -huh. I think it was, like, clarifying, you know? I was like, okay. I mean, I, you know, I was also, like, a shy, quiet, um, uncomfortable. Like, I just, it wasn't, like, a great fit, but I don't, you know, and they were really, they were really busy. Like, it was Janice Min times. Like, they were working. They were there all the time. Like, you'd walk in, there would be, um, the floor would be, like, papered with printouts from Getty of all, like, the red carpet stuff. You know, like, they just, it they were just very busy. Like, it was um, in a serious way. And I was, I was just like, oh, I, this is not what I, like, this is working too hard on this for me. Like, this is not the huh. material that I, like, want to be. Not that, like, they were like, oh, ha have a job. Do you know what I mean? Like, there was no, uh, I, was, I didn't impress anyone there. <laughs> it wasn't like you were like, 
this kind of grinding is anathema to me. You were like, grinding this hard on this material is not something I want to do. Yes. And actually, I mean, I've worked at magazines where we grinded that hard and it was really fun. I mean, it was hard, but it was super fun too. So it's not, it wasn't that part. Like the collective working hard when you're inside a magazine is so intoxicating, you know? Um, even though you're also like, this is horrible and dysfunctional. <laughs> I never see the sun. But like, it's fun, you know? It's fun to make things with people. Is that the uh, New York Magazine time of your life? No, it was actually Radar. Radar? Yeah. So Radar was like my first job. So so before Radar became a tabloid owned by the National Enquirer or whatever it's owned by. Um, yeah, so what happened? So I finished college. I interned at a bunch of places. And then I ended up working at Variety as like a, an assistant. Like a, I compiled like the uh, theater box office numbers. And I went to a ton of red carpet premieres, which was actually really awesome experience, not just because it was parties, but I just had to learn how to go to a party by myself. There's some of these things that are so mortifying. Like, Did you, have to, to, did you ever have to do like um, red carpet reporting? Yes, that's what I was doing. You just stand on the red carpet and you talk to people. I think that's the worst thing I ever did as a nominal journalist. Who did you I, do it for? Who did I don't do even remember. I, I did it one time. It was like, I can never do that again. Yeah. I mean, it's very, yeah, totally. hundred. It was, it was good because what I needed to get was like very, it didn't have to, like, I didn't have to ask anyone embarrassing questions and, and they knew it was variety. So they weren't like that mad at me. Um, and I really did find it very interesting. Like that is, that was pretty interesting to me. And then also we, we would go to the parties afterwards, which were like, this was been in the mid 2000s. So there was still, people still had money. So like it was, they were just so swanky, which was fun in and of itself. And then also just to learn how to like be at a party where you don't know anybody. Um, and obviously like sometimes you pretend to talk on your phone because it's like so uncomfortable. You just like have to fake conversation. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like just, I would do that. But but then you start to know people and you figure out how to do it. And you, and I, I mean, I'm never going to be a person who's really good at just like cold approaching someone, but like it was really good experience in just reporting, but also just like being in a space where you're just like, what? Okay, I just have to make the best of this. I have to figure out how to spend 45 minutes here. Um, and it can't just be eating egg rolls, you know? We're jumping all over the place, but do you have any tips for people who find themselves alone at an uncomfortable and or swanky party of what to do aside from talk to yourself on the phone? I mean, you're just like supposed to go talk to someone. You just have to like go make conversation with anyone that you see. You basically like you start making small talk like over the buffet table and like some people will like literally run away from you. Do you know what I mean? Because they just there's other people are anxious, you know, they won't do it. And then other people will chat with you. And the thing that starts to happen at those is mostly that I just would end up talking to other journalists because they're the people that you recognize. Um, And and that was fun, you know. Um, And like there was this one time I think it was like. It was the Fantastic Four premiere, and it was on Liberty Island, like, with the Statue of Liberty. And I don't remember. I think it rained. Basically, we all, like, the journalists, we all, like, got stuck for hours getting there (laughs) and then on Liberty Island. And it was, like, a one night, and I made, like, the fastest friends with these three other journalists. And we had, like, baby journalists. And we had, like, the best time. It was honestly like the beginning of a TV show. We're like, and then they're friends forever. I mean, we literally don't ever speak. We never spoke. And we like met once. But it was just like, the. It was. it's just like stuff like that. It's like, it's barely about them. It was really, it was really fun and interesting. But it, given that we're in the chronology, what happened is basically if I had known enough, if I had known more people or understood 
I probably could have parlayed that into a job because Variety was like, oh, like that's a daily paper. Like it was sort of people were like impressed with it enough, but I didn't know anything or anyone. So I went to journalism school. (laughs) Are you into journalism school then? Yeah. So I went to journalism school about like two years after college. I went specifically to NYU's cultural reporting and criticism program because I wanted to be a TV critic, right? And um, and I was there for a year and a half. I met my husband, so like I can't complain. And and that is how I ended up at Radar because someone who an, a student who'd also been there ended up at Radar, and I started writing capsule reviews um, for them, and it ended up turning into a job. and And that was my first like grown up job, and that was like a full print magazine, and I had the whole print magazine experience which was really awesome. Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly the voices sounded totally natural and human to me this listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free now normally you get a two-week free trial but listeners of long form get a whole month free go to listening.com slash long form or use the code long form at checkout listening your life just got a lot easier Aside from meeting your husband, what are your feelings now about J-School? I think it's very... In life, right, like one thing leads to another, right? So like you live your life and this thing led to that thing and led to that thing. And journalism school is one of those things. Like it led to a lot of things. It led to that job at rate. I mean, there's many things in my life that trace back to that. Um, So it's hard to be like, I wouldn't do it. Um, I think the other thing is that I didn't have to pay for it. Like I got a full ride so um which like is a I feel embarrassed to say because like it feels am I bragging maybe I'm bragging but mostly I'm saying like a lot of the like the calculus the calculations of journalism school were not like present in my circumstance so um it doesn't I'm not like like the problem is that it's not a trade school like being a lawyer or a doctor you don't have to go to journalism school to be a journalist and so it just cannot give you those things it cannot give you the thing like it's just so much fuzzier than that and i think that that's a real recipe for leaving people unsatisfied sometimes but it also like did i met a bunch of people you know um and it didn't meeting those people didn't feel like the way i thought it would like connections didn't feel like how i thought they would feel i think i thought they would feel concrete or like I really know that person I can call them I mean I think they feel like that now but at the time they really really didn't it was like I no, I have no like this isn't helping at all but it of course it did you know it's like you even if it's just the kids you're in school with which actually is exactly the people that ended up being important I do think you're bragging but it's you think uh, you're bra- okay then cut it out 
That was don't a joke. Like that was a editor. joke. I'm just kidding. I'm just giving you. I'm just giving you shit. I don't think you're bragging like, at just, all. Like, you, see, like, you, you just really like you're like okay. I was bragging. Take it out. No, 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 no. no we're, a, we're leaving that in, and we're leaving <laughs> this in. But B, uh, I was just genuinely giving you shit because the thing I was going to actually say is that completely changes every equation about J school. The whole thing is is the money that you have to pay to get that experience, which maybe you need or maybe you don't need, is that worth it? essentially when part of the value is those connections. But if you don't have to pay for it, then it's all pretty valuable. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> so yes. I mean, I don't, like, I just, I think the thing about J-School is, it's like, if you don't know how to proceed, like, it's a great way to proceed, you know? Can you talk a little bit more about the gap between how those connections felt at the time and what a real connection feels like? Do you know what I, you, you do know what I mean? Like, so I just feel like it's also like, um, you know, like people have mentors, like they're like, I have a mentor, like even in college. And I just be like, what? Like you have a grown up that you like talk to. That's a prof-. like I just didn't have that. I just couldn't. I mean, I didn't ever try to cultivate it. I just like didn't. It's I didn't. It's not was not like in my toolkit of things that I could do or knew how to do particularly. Um, and there was a way that like J school sort of felt. And not just day school, like all this stuff sort of feels similar. It's like, what does it mean to have a connect? I think I think I thought having a connection was like really tangible. It was like, this person's going to do this thing for me. And that's not at all what that is, right? Now, like 20 years later, I'm like, oh, right. Connections are like just literally like having the person's correct email format. Do you know what I mean? Like in a way or like someone else to ask for their email. Like I just, I think I just have a different idea of what they are. Um, but I really... I remember in journalism school being like, this is not connections. And then in hindsight, it's like, oh, maybe maybe it was the beginning of them. And actually, this is the other thing about J School that's related to this is that obviously, like, journalism and especially a certain kind of reporting, like, really rewards people – or not rewards people. It seems suited to people who don't need, like, that kind of reassurance, who are just like, it's cool, I'm going to – like, you know, newspaper got like reporters used to be like, they didn't go to J school. They like were 17 years old and they were like, I'm going to go string for like whatever. Right. Like, I'm going to go knock on every door. And so you're like, so there's a way that just like being like, yes, I need someone to tell me what to do in this field where like the whole thing is you have to make it up. Like can feel sort of like it sort of feels like self-conscious or just like even at odds with like the thing you're going to do next. But I just think. Not everybody is comfortable right away just being like, I'm going to make it up. You know, like some people want to know how to proceed <laughs> or just have like some help proceeding or some just like framework. Some guidelines somewhere. Someone. Yeah, totally. Just think something to even just like, you know, it's like, right, just like a first draft to play around with. All right, let's move ahead. You ready to move ahead? I'm ready. When is the point when you decided the thing that I want to be doing is writing full-time not editing not jumping in in different ways in a magazine when when did like um i'm gonna be a tv critic that is what my focus is gonna be when did that happen so radar folded i went and worked a bunch of places it was actually great i worked at slate i worked at this place called black book which was less great but was really instructive in a bunch of ways and i ended up at vulture um and i was hired as a blogger like a full-time main blogger. I was writing eight posts a day. And I really loved it. 
like I loved Vulture. Like I loved the people. I loved the voice. Like I really, it was like a great home. I had a great time. And I was there um, long enough that I, like I ended up not, like I, I got promoted to sort of like being like deputy at, like it was more high up at the site. Um, was still writing a bunch, but I was like, you know, not writing eight posts a day. Um, and then there was just like basically a game of TV critic musical chairs, which is that Emily Nussbaum, who had been the TV critic at New York, went to the New Yorker and Matt Zoller sites, who'd been the TV critic at Salon, went to New York and Salon, where I had actually interned, um, needed a TV critic. And I had, as we know, like wanted to be a TV critic since I was 19 years old. And I had written, you know, I'd been writing a bunch of TV criticism for Vulture. I'd been writing other things, too. But like I had definitely been writing TV criticism. Um and so I went after that job and I got offered that job. And I, you know, I was like, I've been wanting to be a TV critic for a long time. I guess I'm going to go do this. I mean, the thing is that I have observed is that as you get older, like um, job offers get more and more painful because I think things start to be like if you hate your job, it's one thing. But like if you kind of like your job, um, it's like the tyranny of small differences or something like you're just like, oh, this it. You just like you just can feel you're like, I don't want to leave this and this and this like this is so scary. And this other thing's not offering me anything that different. And it starts to get more and more torturous. And I was pretty tortured by that that change because I just really liked New York. But it was probably like the last one I was like, I should just I know the answer. I should try to do this. I've been wanting to do this. So I did. And so I went to salon. What does going after a job look like? Oh, I mean, uh, what did I? Well, I mean, I, I applied for the job at New York and I didn't get it. Like I, I did a bunch of pieces for them, which ended up actually being good pieces that were helpful to me in other ways. Um, and then, yeah, I think I emailed the then editor in chief of Salon, whose email, of course, I had because I had been an intern and he knew who I was <laughs> and uh, like talking about connections. And I probably went in for a couple interviews, but it was not. Um, yeah, I think they were like, yeah, we know who you are. You Let's let's work it out. <laughs> yeah. And then you were there for a while and moved to Slate? I was there for about a year or so. And in that time, Dan Coyce at Slate um, had me come down to South by Southwest for a Slate panel with um, about like the future of TV, which actually was really interesting because we we was a panel with this guy who had a app that was like um, sort of like a second screen app. It was like before it was obvious that Twitter was going to do all that and there didn't need to be a second screen app. But he was really, this conversation is very memorable because we sort of gotten a little back and forth where he was like, no, if it's popular, it is good. And I was like, no, it's just popular. Like it was just like a real <laughs> like, um, and I think Dan was like really chuffed by that basically. Uh, so, so um they eventually were, like, also sort of looking for a TV critic because I think there was just, like, people moving around. Um, and so, like, they got in touch with me about that. And I was like, yeah, I would love to come work at Slate. And when was that? What year are we talking about? Honestly, I think it was 10 years ago. Wow. I know. It's crazy. God, we're so old. <laughs> also, just, like, I feel like it's a long time to be somewhere in our business now. Yeah, it is a long time. Do you think that uh, 10 years ago Willa would have expected she'd still be there? I don't. I don't know. Like, I definitely, I, I definitely didn't think about that. I mean, I think maybe. Like, that's the thing, also, Max, about <laughs> having been like, I really want to be a TV critic. Is that then, like, that happened, and then you're like, oh, well, I don't have like, what's the I, like? It's not that I don't have other things I want to do, but it was very like nebulous. You know what I'm saying? What do you do 
after you do the thing you wanted to do is a pretty big question. I guess you make a podcast. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. And and I, I can't believe we've gotten this far without talking about the podcast, but I got one more beat on the TV critic era before we moved to Dakota Ring, which is basically like you did the thing, you got the job, you got the job like multiple times, in fact. Mm-hmm. That wave basically from when you started started to want to write about TV to 2016, 2020, the amount of good television, ambitious television that was on the air was going up and up and up and up and up that whole time. But at some point, your relationship to it changed. And I'm, I'm interested in what that change was and then how podcasting fit in. Yeah. I mean, just totally truthfully, like this, I could talk about this a really long time because I am still like sorting it out in my mind and I like I think basically I'm supposed to write a really big piece about this like even just for myself so every time I talk about it I'm like am I getting closer to like writing this essay I basically feel like a tv apostate now like I kind of hate it Hmm. um and that's like overstating it but not completely I mean, there's a lot to say. I mean, one of the things is just like, listen, writing about anything, any art form over and over and over again is like, God bless the people that are really, really still interested in it. I'm I'm actually in awe of them. I think TV specifically, like particularly does not lend itself to that for a number of reasons. One, like it's not like, you know, Peter Sheldahl, you're like, oh, my God, every time you wrote a piece, like, you knew so much. But also you had to go, like, learn about the 1400s or the 800s or, like, 1930s. <laughs> and, like, these people are all genius. Like, there's so much, like, art history is so rich. It's so long. Like, every time you're, like, dropping into things that are, like, so vibrant and fascinating. And TV's history is much shorter than that. Additionally... TV itself is really long. Let's say you're a movie critic. You want to watch something. It's going to take three hours of your life at most, and it will be finished. And you can have a whole thought about that whole thing. And television is really long. It's just really long. And the the structural things that were happening with TV, sort of the invention of streaming, basically, meant that suddenly TV critics were getting, we were getting all of it. Like, we used to get, like, A network show, you'd get like an hour of the, you'd get the first two episodes, maybe. Do you know what I mean? And you'd review that, which is insane. Like, that's an insane thing to do. But it would take two hours. Now you get 10 hours. Like, you get the (laughs) whole thing. Like, you feel, you're like, well, I guess I have to watch the whole thing. Or maybe you don't. But you're just like, oh, my God. Then that's, and, and so before I had children, watching TV in the middle of the day for four hours or whatever the day I had to watch the House of, House of Cards. Like, I was like, that was fun. Like, uh, what? Who cares? Like, I just watch TV for six hours in the middle of the day. Like, I don't have time to watch TV six hours <laughs> right. in the middle of the day. And I don't, and it doesn't feel good to me. It feels gross. So, like, I think that that was just, I think actually, like, basically what I'm saying is the peak TV, the moreness got a little bit relentless. Yeah. And also, in any medium, most things are not that good or they're fine. And you just, if you have to watch a lot of stuff, not just like a regular person, right? So not just what you're interested in, you end up having to watch a lot of stuff you're not that interested in. And as a critic, your job is to think interesting things about those things you're not that interested in. And for a long time, having to do that made them interesting. But it sort of 
stopped for a lot of stuff. Like if, if there was something that was really good or new, I could do it. But I was like, oh, I've actually seen like a hundred of these. You know what I mean? Like I really know what's happening here. And I've like written about this a lot. Um, and the thing that started to happen was like I could tell I was getting bitter about it and uh-huh. snarky. And that's not the right place to be coming from, you know, like especially now it's like. People want you to be insightful and incisive, but I think they also, like, they actually, you know, people read reviews of things they like, of things they're interested in, and um, to just, like, be coming from just a really negative place, or, like, not even, I don't think it, I don't think it always bled into my writing at all, actually, but I just, like, think I could tell, where I was, like, I'm coming from the wrong place. You knew it. Yeah, I knew it. It was also just, like, it's a lonely thing, you know what I mean? This is the thing about writing, it's, like, you're just with your brain, and that can be really fun. And then when it stops being fun, you're just with your brain, right? So it was like, <laughs> right. um, yeah, so it just was like, oh, like, I'm just spending a lot of time alone watching TV and, like, writing about it. I'm done with that. Do you think there was any aspect, aside from not being able to escape your own brain, that had to do with the project that had felt exciting at the beginning being complete like I feel like there's this energy when you were talking about when you got into it that you were like part of a thing that was making the case for this and then like the jury ruled TV's legit everyone agrees do you think that had any aspect of it a hundred percent I I feel like we were like we've got to take TV seriously it's art it can be all those things which I believe and then like kind of like we're gilding the lily now like I just like TV is the most popular powerful medium that had ever existed before the internet like it's like it's just not an underdog like the only place it was an underdog was like as like should we take it seriously as art and so we were like no we have to take it seriously as art and then like I just feel like it there was like a de-emphasis on its deep overdogness which um and so now we're in the situation where like Oh, we it's it gets it gets to have it all. Like we take it really seriously, even though a lot of it is shitty, and even though like it is a huge like Fox News is a literal, real, like honest to God, actual disaster, and it gave us <laughs> Trump, and like just just like it not like just dealing with the art product, like kind of short sells, like like I think it's like a little bit um, myopic about like what TV is, uh, and then also I just think like. There was like a lot of structural forces that made um, this period that's just passed interesting about television. But I think a lot of them might have been blippy. I think we think of TV as as everything. We, th- we tend to think in terms of things as progressing, as making progress. And I think like the history of television tells us like people will basically watch what's on. Um, and it it's great if it's good. But like people people can get really into Twin Peaks like it's happening, you know, but that a lot of people just watch what's on. And um, there was this moment where it was like, oh, everyone's really excited about things that are good. They're excited about The Sopranos. They're excited about Orange is the New Black. They're talking about girls. I mean, you know what, like pick your show and it's like oh I think weirdly Netflix is just like oh no people will just watch what's on (laughs) and like that's that's like that doesn't mean that critics shouldn't be like here's what's actually good and not but it's a little bit it was like a little distorting and I still watch some TV shows you know Um, and I'm sure I will and it's really I like like picking them now (laughs) like when it's something I want to watch Uh, but like we are still in like a we're not seeing each other that much right now phase you know we're a little done are you able to turn your brain off when you're watching TV? Yes and no. Like, I think, yes, 
basically. But like, does that mean that if I didn't turn my brain on like two minutes after I turned it off, I couldn't figure out what to write about it? Like, yes, of course I could do that. Those muscles don't go away. I just think it was always a part of how I was watching everything always. Like watching something and be like, oh, you have to say something about it is not like that. That part is kind of like comes naturally. I mean, not that I don't have like not that it doesn't have to be refined a huge amount and it's like garbage, which is like a place to start. Like it comes pretty naturally. Okay, can we talk about decoder ring? Yeah, totally. It's connected. So let's do it. I can't believe how long it has taken for me to get to the show because I uh, I'm a I'm a big fan. I have a lot of questions about how you make this thing. Can you give the like very short description of what Decoder Ring is? Yeah, it's a show about cracking cultural mysteries where the mysteries are extremely largely construed. So it's just like, um, so listen, the job of a critic is to take an object and to say, be like, say something interesting about it. Like, that's what a critic's job is. And I think that is actually also like Decoder Ring's job. It's like, take something, say something interesting about it, but make an argument, like make an argument and say something some try and say something they haven't heard before about this thing. Um and we do organize it like around a question like every episode is like what happened to the laugh track? Why don't we eat blue food? Like are they can be really specific, you know, like they aren't always questions you've always been wondering about. <laughs> Basically, they can we sort of we sorry we sort of retrofit them to like the actual topic at hand. Um but they are organized around a question, so I think it often it like can feel like we're on a hunt, like we're solving a mystery more than um it it sometimes feels like when we're actually making them. How do you pick those topics? How do you find the either real mysteries that you want to solve or the questions that you have a thought about and want to back into? I think this is a little bit of like the um, the show's like special sauce slash like Achilles heel, which is that there isn't I don't know is like the the simple way to answer that question. And the well, I actually more- appreciate that answer because that's kind of one of my favorite things about it is like it just feels like it could be anything. No, that's what I mean when I say I think it's a special sauce. Like I think it's like. You're like, oh, I didn't know that could be a decoder ring. And then we say, it's a decoder ring. And you're like, oh, totally. Like, I want people to have that feeling. Yeah, totally. It's like uh, Salino and Barnes and hydration. You're like, sure, great, great. I didn't know it was going to be either of those things. Uh, and yeah, like, and I think that makes it hard. So, like, we've, we've done a couple episodes now that are actually about, like, 80s kid stuff. We did an episode about Chuck E. Cheese and, like, sort of the pizza wars. We've done an episode about the Cabbage Patch Kids. And and so people will send emails being like, do something about pogs, you know, like, and I get it. Like, that seems like something we should do or Beanie Babies. But I'm like, no, no, we can't do it because, like, we've already done too much of that. So it has to be it's not just even the topic. It's like the idea that I want to like I want it to be about has to be a new one, even if there's some overlap on topic. But, yeah, it's like some combination of like it. I kind of want it to feel like um like a trap door, you know, like when you squish on a trap door, there's like a little spring. It's like if you if you if it's the right idea, like you start to look into it and you're like, oh, there's like there's something like it's given. It's given a little like I can't just I don't know the answer for some from looking at Wikipedia. And also there seems like interesting possibilities. And I have like some questions, you know, how does that work from a process standpoint? Like, do you have a thousand ideas that you're pressing on all the time? How often do you guys kill episodes? Like, how, how does it work? Uh, we don't. So th- so process-wise, per episode, the process is actually very organic in a way that I think um, can be confounding. So 
this is how it's connected to being a critic is like the thing about being a critic is right. You're supposed to say something interesting about whatever, any subject. And then also like you find out a lot of the time what you think and what's really interesting and you refine it by writing. And I think that there is a huge amount of that that is part of the process of making an episode of decodering. Like I pick a topic. We're working on an episode about the tooth fairy right now. Okay. Like um, I start to, I think there's something there. Like there's a good que- there we have a real question about the tooth fairy. Um and you start to push on it, but I don't actually know my con- like I don't know what it means. I don't know the argument that I make. And the only way I know is from talking to people and so or thinking about it and reading stuff. So the scripts will be like I'll be like okay, I know where like the first two parts are going. I think I have a structure, but like we're going to have to land this plane. I'm I'm not sure. Like we're going to get there. It's so interesting to hear you say that because you know, I listened to all of these episodes over the last couple of days, and they are they're, the topics are so disparate. So I listened to like the selling out episode about Franz and an Oprah. I listened to that sideways story about like what was the real impact of that movie on the wine industry. The hydration one, I love it. Just it's like, why did we become obsessed with being hydrated all the time? Why does every child walk around with a water bottle? And then this one about your mom's friend was this wonderful artist who never quite made it. Hugely disparate topics. But the thing that felt so consistent to me was the confidence with which you stuck the landing. Thank you. Like, I honestly think that's like, I spent like 10 years being like, I'm going to make a conclusion about like a piece of television. And it's like, it's the same thing. It's like, I have to write you a critical essay at the end of this piece. And I know how to do that. Like I've had a lot, a lot of practice. And I don't stress out about that part. And I know from working with other people that that can be hard. It's hard to say something at the end. And I'm like, I'll figure it out. And I do. (laughs) And that's just from practice. Like that's just because I did a ton at a ton. What part about making the show is hard? Oh my god, everything. What do you mean it's hard? Like the thing I think the reason the show is so like alive to me and so like I feel so in it still even though we've been doing it like for 5 years is because every single time I'm like I have to do this from scratch. Like do you know what I mean? It really like it isn't that formulaic. Like it, I think it is. You know, like there's a, but it it I, there's not like I don't I don't know, like, this happened. Like, there's, we have a cold open, so okay, I can write the cold open. It's super fun to write. But, like, it doesn't, it's not like I know what it's supposed to be. And it's also not like, like, I'm never talking to people and I'd be like, I need this here. Like, like it's just, I, I just don't, like, I have to go write it. And um, that's really hard. Like, the hard part is still the writing. Like, the thing that's so cool about making a podcast is, like, it hurts, the writing hurts, and then you get to, like, you put it on blocks, you know? Like, then you, like get an audio cut and it feels like when it's like when you send a written piece to like an editor and they give it back to you and you're like oh my god I have all this work to do thank you so much but like I have I can see yeah totally totally like I'll do this it's like just getting in an audio is like that you're like oh my god all this shit is wrong and I can fix it right now like I I hear it immediately so like as soon as you get it there then even when it's hard you're like well at least I have a draft like I'm going and that's that part I find really fun how do you think differently about the Writing in a podcast versus the writing you're doing for Slate or whatever. Um, I think I think they're similar and different. Like I, I think writing still like writing is hard. Um, writing is fun. Writing is 
the whole thing, you know, like I, the show is really written. Um, I think that you can get away with like a lot of like hacky shit you can't get away with in real pieces. Like, <laughs> and, and actually more than that, like you almost need them. Like, obviously you don't want to be like the thing you need to know about hydration is or like or like in order to understand that you got to understand that like we can do a little better in in like our language in a podcast but actually like you need to do some version of that like it actually like not always but there there's a reason people do that so like you can make your signposts more elegant but like mm. there is this sort of hand holding that happens that i think like is sort of necessary so like on the one hand like i kind of hate that i'm like this is so hacky uh, but then on the other hand you're like oh my god it's so fun i didn't have to like write an elegant transition i could just be like so the thing you need to know is i mean I try let's to, go back you know. <laughs> yeah exactly before we can do this we've got to do that or whatever <laughs> uh and and you know and like honestly even just writing in the shitty version and then getting to go back and make it better but just like literally knowing you just need a scent like that is very freeing obviously like that's also what's really like when you do those really nicely like that's what's beautiful and fun about a written piece um but yeah so that i i like i really like reporting i love reporting i and i like getting to put it it feels like it's 3d like it just feels like it's a craft kind of like in a more extreme way than writing which is also a craft uh but feels different to me it's like sculpture versus painting or something was it hard to find your actual voice so no (laughs) (laughs) this is like i don't know why but also this thing like do you remember you have to like do in school like um presentations for like your class about whatever you know like some history you're like you were assigned to like tell them about Constantinople, you know, whatever. And you have to do like five minutes about it. And I was always good at that because I was always like, I'll say this like slightly funny thing. And I know that everyone will laugh because like this isn't a stand up comedy show. It's like a classroom and everyone's like so like everyone wants to be on your side in that situation. And I feel like like I, I feel like I always wrote how kind of how I talk. And so actually writing how I talk was easy like I'm not saying if you listen to the early episodes like I've gotten much better on mic and I have a much all those things but I had some I for some reason I like did have some like innate sense of that stuff um and I don't know why can you articulate what getting better on mic sounds like to you yes it's like um being comfortable like knowing what your voice can do like throwing things away like just like using your voice to get people close, to make people laugh, to like tell them they should be paying attention, to tell them you're serious. All, like just a, a sort of just exactly what it is. You know, it's like um, it's like acting, right? Yeah. But I mean, it's, you know, it's always this this at least I find it to be this strange thing where it's like um, today the character of Willa will be played by Willa. Like, it's like <laughs> yes, part totally. of what getting better means is like being more yourself. You know, the thing is, though, that, like, I don't sound like myself on mic. Um, like, everyone who really knows me is, like, your voice intonations on mic are really weird. Like, you don't talk like yourself. And it's true. Like, if I'm reading a script, I think it sounds natural to people who don't know me or pretty natural. But it's not how I talk like I'm talking to you. Um, and I can't make I can't make those align. Like, I don't. I don't know how I don't I would have to like really listen to how I really talk and try to figure it out. So it's not like so it is a character, you know. How do you think of yourself as a character on the show? Because 
one of the things that I found listening back to a bunch of episodes sort of back to back to back is that often in those endings in particular, you come in. Yeah. And part of the way that you stick the landing, part of the way that you make meaning of whatever the thing is, is to articulate at least why you were interested in it. So I would just like straight up, honestly, like I haven't thought about this at all. And I actually think probably it's productive. Not like I think it's probably helpful that I haven't like thought about this too much. Because <laughs> Let's talk so, about it. Let's talk about it some more. No, no, I'm, I, I'm happy. To, like, I'm, I'm happy to think about it. Um, but like I don't. This is like first thought, worst thought, best thought. I don't know. Like it's not. Um, yeah. I have been. I know that I. Like in other kinds of writing, I am sort of like it's funny because we started with this piece where you were like. You wrote about how why you became a TV critic, but I am not. I don't. I keep. I often have kept myself out of like I if like reported pieces. I don't want a lot of I in them. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm conscious of it. Um, and I think when I as a critic, I learned that there's a way to deploy yourself um, that can be very cheap but very powerful. It's like a cheat. Do you know what I mean? Like you can just mm-hmm. use yourself to stand in. Um, and sometimes it. It, it, it's a it's a it's a trick you know but like um and sometimes it's it's a good trick and sometimes just a lazy trick but you can do it so i think i got a little more comfortable doing that and knowing those moments i'm sure that that's informing stuff about the show but like i actually i think i'm a like i'm actually kind of like a guarded person i think i'm like this i think i'm like a, a perfect like i'm a person where like i'm not at all a guarded person obviously like we're having this conversation i seem like myself and open but like there's like i'm not I don't want to overshare about my like actual like what I do with my life, you know, like like my like private life. Not that there's, I just like that's not. I don't like. I'm just not been that interested in it. And so I think in the show, it's like all just about ideas. It feels like a safe place to be like I think this. Um, I mean, the thing about the show is we don't kill a lot, and we are small staff, so we have to like, we basically have to make them work. And like one of the things about if you don't do the thing we're doing, then the story has to have a end, right? Like you need a three act. Like that's the killer of so many narrative stories. It's like, it's the killer of so many jokes. It's the killer of stories you tell your friends, you know, like what's the end? Like you have like the climax and then it's like, what's the last beat? Like, this American life, like, they always have an incredible, gorgeous, hilarious, perfect last beat, which is certainly not why they kill so many things, but I'm sure contributes to it. Do you know what I mean? And our last beat is me thinking about it. Well, do you um, do you want to make meaning of this conversation? Can you land the plane here? What, no, what... definitely not. That's your job. I'm just a passenger. <laughs> do you think you're going to do this for a long time? do this podcast for a long time is podcasting going to be the forever thing i don't know i don't know i could see it going a lot of different ways you might just start sort of hating it (laughs) no (laughs) no i mean i think it's it's not like i think it's different it's like it's not writing that i hate right um and making a podcast like this i can look at so many different things you know it just feels like i can look at water i can look at you know whatever like i can look at bustles <laughs> i can look and at you, and you don't necessarily need to look at it for 10 straight hours on your couch yeah exactly i get to talk to a ton of people um and so that way like it does feel just so much more like it's just the scope is so much bigger so in that way like like yeah i could do it for a long time it feels different that way 
it's so who knows what's going to happen. Um, are you going to do this forever? Willa, thanks so much for doing this. <laughs> All right. But really, thank you for doing this. It was so much fun. Oh, thank to talk you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Seth Kelly edited this episode. Thanks to him. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone at Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks so much to Willa Paskin. Her podcast is called Dakota Ring. The new season is out April 12th. In the meantime, go back, listen to all of these episodes, particularly The Sign Painter. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Forum this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.